What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Ladies Let's Talk About Sex. I'm your host, Felicia, and I'm a lady talking about sex. This week, we have a very special episode, and it's going to be a little bit heavier. Uh, This week, we're going to talk about sexual violence and sexual assault. I have a very special guest with us. Her name is Bianca. Bianca, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, everyone. Uh, As was mentioned, my name is Bianca, and I am the sexual violence education advisor for McGill's Office for Sexual Violence Response Support and Education. And Bianca, do you want to let people know kind of what you do uh, at McGill and um, why sexual violence is important to you? Yeah, certainly. So um, I am the education advisor, like I'd mentioned. So I'm part of the office. We're an office of two currently, two full-time staff members. So myself and my colleague, Emily Narcat, and she's the case manager. Uh, so essentially what I do is I oversee the programming related to consent education and sexual violence awareness and prevention. So that um, stretches from online education to in-person workshops. I also oversee a volunteer team, so our Consent McGill uh, peer educator team. If you're a McGill student, you're more than welcome to apply. We have about 30 volunteers who helped with different events. Uh, they run our social media platforms, such as Facebook and Instagram. We table across campus. So these are all efforts to engage our community from students, staff, and faculty uh, so that we can create a more inclusive, supportive culture on campus, but also to help uh, break the stigma that continues to, round, to surround sexual and gender-based violence. Amazing. And I think that this is such a beautiful resource to also have on campus. For those of you who don't know, uh, Ladies Let's Talk About Sex does run out of McGill University, which is why we have the privilege of discussing and having these conversations with people who um, work within these clubs and committees. So um, as we're talking about sexual violence and assault, um, I kind of wanted to discuss the different domains that fall under these umbrellas and kind of give people a little bit of a better understanding of what the difference is between um, sexual violence, sexual assault, and domestic abuse and kind of discuss the different types of um, kind of interactions that happen within each of these domains. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a really good point to bring up because sexual violence, the term in of itself, is I would say relatively newer as a more colloquial term. So sexual violence is what we consider to be the umbrella term that encompasses many different forms of harm, or you could think about it as a spectrum. And so what we would say is that sexual violence, if you look at the tips of the umbrella, you would see sexual assault, sexual harassment, cyber violence, stalking, Um, And so there are different things that fall under sexual violence that relate to those forms of harm. Sexual violence, therefore, encompasses many different forms of harm and allows us to better support, understand, and allow people to feel kind of understood in this type of definition. However, I do caution that definitions always put people or experiences into boxes and so that I would never label somebody's experience before they name their own. So, for example, if we were talking and you shared a story from me, I wouldn't go forward and say, oh, that was sexual assault or, oh, that was sexual violence. 
I would ask you how you feel about the situation, your experience, and see if you use any terms. If I really felt that a term was important to help empower or educate whomever I'm talking with, I would use it um, as an educational tool. So I would start with my personal perception. And I would begin by saying, it sounds like to me what happened could be considered sexual violence or sexual assault. And that allows the person to say, you know, oh, I didn't think about it that way. Or yes, you're right. Or, um, you know, just to have a larger discussion around what it means. But going back to the definitions in and of itself, sexual assault really looks at penetrative violence. And then your last question around domestic violence. We've kind of shifted away from that term, especially on campus, and we consider domestic violence to look more like interpersonal violence. And so what that means is violence can happen between people who are in a romantic relationship, whether that's physical or emotional. It can also happen between roommates. So that's really important for us to talk about considering um, the university context we're in and between friends as well. So domestic violence historically has looked at violence between intimate partners, household families, um, where we extend beyond and think about interpersonal violence happening between people with different relationships. That's, that's really great. And thank you for going into such detail, because I think it's really important. Um, and I really loved your point, too, about um, not labeling scenarios and stories until the person who had encountered these experiences um, decides to label it or associate it with a certain term. And I think that um, differentiating the two um, with in regards to sexual violence and domestic violence is something super important because people kind of forget that domestic violence could be um, non-romantic relationships. You kind of think it's like the atypical you know, um, heteronormative husband and wife relationship when it can be a variety of things. Um, and I also really loved your point about how sexual violence is an umbrella term for a lot of things and how letting survivors or individuals who have experienced, um, you know, these uncomfortable experiences or these, you know, acts of violence, um, allow them to disclose themselves. I, I, I think back to an experience I had when I was 16 years old where I was working and, um, I had a coworker who was 10 years older than me and he kept, um, asking me these very inappropriate questions. He was asking me if I was a virgin, if I was going to wait until I was married to have sex. He told me that I was too pretty to work. And so I remember when I, I was 16 at the time, I I really didn't understand, but I had a conversation with um, a general manager that I worked with because I spoke to a colleague of mine and she ended up telling my story to the general manager who basically you know, asked me essentially if I was okay, and told me that it was, you know, sexual harassment. And at that time, I didn't really know what that was. Um, And I I kind of made jokes of it, because I thought, oh, it's just like some old guy hitting on me, blah, blah, blah. But I really didn't recognize that it was so inappropriate, um, because I was so young. And like, how was I supposed to know? I wasn't. I'd never been exposed to these terms and I'd never, you know, 
had anyone experience something similar to me. So I think that I really, really like the idea of presenting these terms as kind of educational tools too, if someone doesn't even recognize, but allowing them to decide if they want to label their experiences or if they don't, or if they feel like their experiences overlap with, you know, maybe it's harassment and assault, or maybe there isn't a word for it yet, but they can still kind of disclose and even feel like maybe if there isn't a term, it fits under the umbrella of sexual violence. Um, So I really think that that's a a really important thing to recognize. Um, And I know that sexual violence has really been prevalent to uh, women or those who identify as a woman, but on the counter side of things, um, how would you say men experience uh, sexual violence or even domestic abuse? Mm-hmm. So if you are part of the McGill community, you can think back to possibly the It Takes All of Us uh, program that was just launched on um, September 2019. So that's a new program that addresses consent, sexual violence awareness, prevention, active bystander, and how to respond to disclosures with the resources. And so in that program, there's a robust um, overview of the different statistics and the prevalence of sexual violence. I do want to say that sexual violence can affect anybody. Um, and we know that a lot of the statistics sometimes can other folks. I think there is value in numbers and knowing kind of the prevalence. But what I'd like to talk about today is more the impacts and the fact that so many people who experience forms of sexual violence don't disclose, don't come forward. And that's often due to intersecting forms of oppression, meaning that they are not believed when they come forward, that their identity puts them at higher risk, that services aren't available um, because services are often tailored to cater to a certain group, uh, whether that's class, identity, religion, background. And so when I talked earlier about the stigmas that surround sexual violence, all of that can be perpetuated um, within different resources, unfortunately. And so when I think about, you know, women experiencing um, different forms of sexual violence and domestic or interpersonal abuse, certainly that's been the predominant narrative that's filled our news um, and our different feeds and things like that. Uh, specifically, you know, in Canada, marital rape was only banned in 1983. So which meant that a husband was legally allowed to, and the term at the time was used, rape um, their female partner, and it wasn't considered a crime. So there is a long standing history of violence towards women and femme identified bodies. So that's something that we hear about more. And I think slowly we're also starting to hear about the impacts towards um, LGBTQ plus individuals as well as men. And so one thing that is kind of coming out in statistics is that men who experience uh, violence are often shamed for their experience, are told that that couldn't have happened to them. Um, And that often what we see is that men experience higher rates of child sexual abuse, but disclose 
often only when they're adults. So that would be considered um, adults who disclose child sexual abuse. And it can be really hard to come forward with a historical experience, navigating how that's impacting you currently. Maybe it's come up in a relationship or in a class or in some information that you've known, now been presented with. Um, so again, just going back to the fact that sexual violence can affect anybody, directly or indirectly as well, because these forms of violence have a ripple effect. But we know that People who identify as um, BIPOC, so that's Black, Indigenous, or people of color, uh, who identify as queer, also experience higher rates of sexual violence, trans women and Black trans women as well. No, that's. I think that's so important to recognize too. And I think um, as a lot of going back to men disclosing um, childhood abuse um, and assault, I I think there's a huge movement within the um, within like Hollywood actors disclosing um, their assaults, and even um, I don't know if you watched the R. Kelly documentary, but I think it's a really um, it's a very unfortunate example. But he does disclose his sexual assaults, or his siblings do, and you can it's a very obvious ripple effect of you know power and um trauma and how he you know manifested his childhood um assaults and how that you know obviously affected his relationships in his later life um not that it's an excuse for you know the terrible things he did but I think it's an a, a very obvious example of kind of what happened and and how it can kind of cycle um so, yeah, I haven't seen it yet. Oh, it's um, very good. <laughs> yeah, I haven't watched it yet. I've been definitely following it on social media. Um, and I think what you said is really important, is that lived experiences doesn't excuse somebody's current harmful behaviors. Um, and so that I think that is really important. But also knowing that, you know, I used to work with youth, and one of the biggest fears that parents or guardians would say is that, oh my gosh, well, now that this has happened to the person I care for, the child, um, will this turn them into a perpetrator? Will this make them, you know, hurt other people? And it's just not true, right? I don't think we can say automatically that because somebody has lived this experience, they will thus become something else. Um, and we have to, we have to do a lot of education around that because it can be really stigmatizing for children who um, who disclose and also adults who disclose child sexual abuse and so that their lived experience um, can even make them you know more in tune with other people's trauma and allow them to be a support resource for others who've experienced violence and won't automatically make them some kind of hurtful person so I think that's a really big misconception that I, I'd like to to address no, for sure. And I think it's super important to recognize that um, disclosing and discussing traumas or abuse um, are one of the most incredible things that a person can do, but it's also one of the most, I think, challenging um, because you're kind of facing 
past experiences that I'm I'm sure you never would want to relive but I think that disclosing is definitely one of the best things you can do for yourself and for your future essentially um I would hope so but we know that's also not always the case and so a lot of people, and I think you wanted to talk about this later around like domestic violence and leaving a, uh, an abusive partner. A lot of people test the waters when they first disclose. They drop maybe little hints or questions or they talk in like, um, about a friend. They label somebody else's experience, which is actually their own. Um, and want to test the waters to get feedback on what you're going to say, because there's so much risk disclosing. You're sharing the most vulnerable part of you. And not everybody is supportive or receptive to these experiences. And I know that when I was working with um, adult survivors of child sexual abuse, they would say that the most harmful part of their experience wasn't exactly the the abuse itself, but more so the fact that the person that they disclosed to didn't believe them. And so there's so much power in believing somebody and being a support for them. And we don't need to know the details, but just recognizing the vulnerability that it takes, the courage that it takes to be able to tell your story is immense and can be very therapeutic to somebody's healing process if you meet them with support and validation. No, I think that's, that's entirely right. And it, it's so unfortunate that so many people have experiences disclosing and then being denied. Um, But I think that the purpose of us talking today is to kind of help people who want to support survivors and want to be good resources to, you know, disclose uh, or be disclosed to these stories and traumas. Um, So I wanted to ask, um, because we did discuss a little bit about the importance of believing survivors, Um, Mm -hmm. but maybe we could kind of go over what are good methods of um reaction or response or because nobody's perfect right so I'm sure that if someone disclosed to me you know on the average day I might not be conditioned to respond properly so maybe what are some methods of receiving this information and being a good support system Mm -hmm. yeah so a core piece to what we do through um, OSFERS is we offer workshops on how to respond to disclosures. And that's, so that's a continuation and extension of the It Takes All of Us programming in that module. Um, because like I had mentioned, there's so much power in being able to supportively respond to somebody disclosing a very personal experience. And so we don't have a lot of time today, but the time that I can share with you, I want to just highlight the three very important foundational components to responding and that the first one is really being available to listen to listen without interruption to listen without judgment so providing a space where the person can talk openly freely and at their own pace and again without judgment so avoiding any why questions, um, questioning what happened to them, was this really the experience, 
you know, saying, why would this person do that to you? Because all of those questions not only take up space, but they also can imply a form of judgment. And so that moves into this second component of really believing the person that comes forward, validating that this is a difficult experience and that you're there to support them, that it takes courage to talk about it, and that you will not be sharing their story without their consent. Because there's so much risk, um, not just in coming forward, but also sharing a story that afterwards you don't know where it goes, right? It goes kind of into, off into this void where you have no control over it. So if you can let the person know that, you know, you will not be sharing their story with anybody else without their consent, I think can help to create that um, supportive bond um, and to let the person know that they have the space to talk to you. Because you may be the first person that they've ever opened up to. You may be the first person who actually validates and believe them. Um, and it can take time if somebody's constantly met with criticism or disbelief. It can take time for somebody to be like, oh my gosh, right? Somebody's actually there and is not critiquing my experience, is not making me feel responsible or guilty. And then the third major component is the empowerment piece. So sexual violence is about taking power and control away from somebody. It's about taking a choice away or not respecting somebody um, and their boundaries, their wants, their limitations. So in the disclosing process, if you can empower the person, work with them to make them feel empowered. And that means not imposing your values, not imposing your perceptions of the situation. Sometimes people may ask, you know, what should I do? Or what would you do if you were in my position? And I often steer clear of answering that directly because not one person ever experiences a situation in the same way. And so what I might do could be very different from what you would do in the exact same situation. So questions is like reflecting on what do you need right now? How can I best support you? Um, what are some of the things that you're having difficulties with? So that could be related to feeling like they can attend class, feeling like they're not safe going to work, having trouble sleeping or feeling like they're increasingly isolated from their peer groups because they don't connect anymore. So. The empowerment piece is really important. And then if they are looking for resources and they're not aware of what they are, um, we're going to talk about them afterwards. But you may also be a knowledge holder. So if you have information on support resources that could potentially be of benefit to the person who's disclosing, that's your opportunity to share them with the person disclosing. Always remembering, though, that you are looking to help empower them. So you wouldn't say, oh, I've heard of this place. You should go there. But more so, this is a resource that's available to you. Would you like me to tell you more about it? Or if you want, I can help you access it. And that gives them then the opportunity to move at their own pace and to decide whether or not that resource is the right fit for them. I think those resources are amazing. And I think that... Um, also, I think it's important to recognize the change in language, um, because we're not really conditioned to, you know, 
let people. We want to problem solve. Yeah, we want the pain to go away. That's it's often the response that people give is that I care about you. My empathy is triggered in that I want to be able to support you to make you feel okay. So I'm going to try to problem solve our way out of this. But that's that's not the key solution here. No, I I completely agree. And I think that it's so important um, just how the minor tweaks in our language can really change the narrative of a conversation and uh, can really not like really won't bombard the survivors. It, It leaves the forum open for them to decide what they feel most comfortable doing, how they feel most comfortable proceeding and what you can do as a support system, which I think is super important and something that we definitely have to get better at, um, you know, as friends and partners and um, just support systems. But I wanted to go over some of the resources um, you were suggesting that we can kind of show our listeners. Yeah. So um, our website is mcgill.ca slash O-S-V-R-S-E. And we have a whole tab, a whole section dedicated to different resources across uh, Montreal. So for our listeners who are in Montreal or who are coming back to Montreal during the school year, you can definitely um, check out that page. So it's like an appendix. They're categorized under different services, whether that's emergency response, whether that's medical support, um, identity-based services, access to abortion and clinics. So you can check it out there. And you can always um, email us at... um, our email to and I'm blanking on it right now <laughs> it's okay I'll put it on our social media um so when you see this podcast to go up check us out on Instagram at ladies let's talk about sex we'll tag uh Ospers and we'll also link their um website below and some resources um on our following social media posts um, yeah So you can always email us uh, if you have questions about the resources, how to access them. Um, What we do is we can also help with resource coordination, whether that's academic accommodations, housing accommodations, um, anything like that. So beyond what's on the website, we also can do that resource coordination with you. Right now we're doing it virtually, but oftentimes, you know, when we're back to running as usual, we do it in person. No, amazing. And this is such a wonderful resource to any of our listeners who go to McGill University. Um, It's something that needs to be discussed more and needs more light shed on um, this source on campus because um, a lot of people haven't really heard that much about you guys. So I think it's super important to spread the word and spread awareness and um, just get as much information as you possibly can. So I wanted to ask you, uh, in light of the current COVID crisis, there has been a rise and spike of domestic abuse at home. Um, So I wanted to ask you about disclosing domestic abuse virtually and what people can do in the current situation. Yes, you're absolutely right. So what we're seeing a lot right now is increased um, 
demand on domestic violence shelters, uh, disclosures of domestic violence. Um, and the reality is, is that tensions are high, but people are also locked in their homes pretty much. And so if home was never a safe place, before and now you're forced to be there because school shut down, because work shut down, um, because there's nowhere else to go, then what happens is there's just a perpetuation and escalation of violence in the home. So there's a couple of groups across Canada who've been raising awareness about this and I believe it's the Foundation. I'm just gonna pull it up here. The Canadian Women's Foundation, yeah, and it's the Signal for Help campaign. So what they did was they created or uh, the campaign focuses on two hand signals that you can do if you're talking with somebody virtually through a video conference um, that you can use to show that you're in some form of distress and that you would like somebody to check in on you. So it may not be safe for somebody to disclose right there because their abuser could be with them in the home. So if they use these hand signals, um, it demonstrates to the person who they're um, video conferencing with that there needs to be some form of follow up. So I would also suggest that you link to the article that the Women's Foundation, Canadian Women's Foundation has put out because it offers so much insight into how to use these two hand signals, how to check in with somebody, uh, how to talk about checking in without actually saying I'm going to check in and follow up on you. Uh, and it, it, it seems pretty simple as well, considering that it's two hand signals. But obviously, there are different ways to check in as well. And so that could be by using another mechanism, another online mechanism, if it's safe to text somebody. Yeah, there may also be different platforms to which you can check in. Sometimes email is safer, sometimes it's not. There's information on how to clear your web browsers if people are looking up, um, for example, shelters or how to access resources. So there's a lot of tools that I think are worth linking to um, if somebody's in a situation of violence at home. And then there's always, of course, the active bystander approach. And this kind of talks more generally about harm that's increasing. So what we're seeing is um, a lot a rise in um, violence towards um, Asian uh, members in our community based off of COVID. Um, and so there's always the ability to be an active bystander in public spaces if you're out and if you're seeing, seeing violence occur based on identity as well. So I tie that in there because I think it's important and it kind of it, it expands to on this conversation about addressing violence in our community. No, a hundred percent. And I'm, I'm pretty aware that um, harassment within the Asian community has kind of gone up just due to like people being racist essentially. And it's, it's, um, it's very upsetting, especially that this kind of stuff is happening in a country like, Canada, um, where we kind of, our foundation is multiculturalism, but I think it's super important and it does fall under the um, umbrella of, you know, violence and discrimination and, you know, every situation is unique, but it's something that we are seeing a lot of right now in light of the COVID crisis. So I think it's important to recognize. What are some quick tools about, um, 
being an active bystander because right now we can't really get involved physically and I wouldn't recommend that regardless of the situation but are there any um maybe like verbal cues on how to diffuse a situation or um yeah you know, obviously if there's danger 911 is then the first thing you do but um maybe being an active bystander in you know, in light of kind of racial remarks or, you know, harassment kind of when you're at the grocery store or the pharmacy, what would you suggest? So we also offer a workshop on uh, how to be an active bystander. And this is something that um, we offer all of McGill members to help empower our communities to take action. So specifically around sexual violence and college kind of life, we know that um, forms of sexual violence and interpersonal violence happen in spaces where other people can maybe witness the situation unfolding because, um, you know, people are doing things in groups. There's like residences, there's social situations. So as much as sexual violence occurs within like the home, the home space in private, there are forms of violence that take place publicly. So knowing how to be an active bystander in all situations, whether it's um, related to sexual violence prevention, um, racist attacks, um, xenophobic harassment, things like that, being an active bystander could be a really great way to help prevent and decrease the violence that's occurring. So the Kind of four approaches that we talk about in our workshop is the direct, delegate, distract, and do something. So all of that information is also on our website, but you can also look up Hollaback. They do, and they right now have a free manual online on how to be active bystanders. And so they've created some great graphics, and I plug them in here because we recently shared it on our um, Instagram page. So if anybody's looking for more resources, again, our, re our website is available, as well as Hollaback's uh, infographics as well. So you would choose the intervention that best is kind of your personality, but also to ensure that you are going to be um, safe. Because if you're going to intervene and it's going to put you and the other person at further risk, then we really suggest that maybe either not intervene, intervening in that way or then calling somebody else to intervene. I know that you had mentioned calling the police. And in situations where there's like an imminent threat and risk, absolutely, the police can be of a resource, but I do always caution talking about calling the police. And some people disagree with this, but when we think about the anti-violence movement, talking about police intervention also merits a conversation around, are the police trained to address these forms of harm that you're calling in? And will further violence happen because we know that Police officers aren't, you know, are not immune to racist um, beliefs, misogynistic views, um, that there are different forms of harms that are perpetuated, unfortunately, by our, what we would call like our safety or security systems. Um, so thinking about it critically before calling the police is something that I suggest. Um, and assessing the situation. So if you do call the police, I always recommend either staying on the phone until the person has arrived, getting the badge number of the person who shows up, 
whether that's, you know, our on-campus security or the police that you've called, um, or if you're witnessing something in person, hanging around if you can at a distance, a safe distance, but being kind of those, the visual person um, documenting the situation. And as we're having this conversation, I want to acknowledge my privilege when I was saying that, you know, the first thing to do is to call the police. Um, it's something that I'm learning and I'm, you know, definitely trying to change that instinctual reaction of if there's an issue of calling the police because, you know, the police don't always de-escalate the way they're supposed to. And, you know, as a white woman, I've never had that innate fear that maybe people of color do in regards to police brutality. So I didn't want to cut that part out of the podcast because I think as a white woman, it's important for me to recognize that privilege that, you know, I innately have and change um, kind of the bystander that I want to be when I'm encountering these types of aggressions or violences and I want to change my response, um, but I have to do that by correcting myself and making sure that, you know, what may be good for me might not be good for the people involved. And so I think that when I was, when I'm editing this podcast now, I'm, I'm, I don't want to take out that remark because I still want to keep checking myself and saying and reminding myself that calling the police isn't always the best option. It may not be the best option for the people involved. It may not even be the best option for me if I'm a bystander. So I want to correct myself there and saying that, you know, the police may not be the right people to de-escalate situations like that. But it's also important for me as a white woman to recognize that whenever I have to encounter something like this, always reacting off of instinct may not always be the best scenario for everybody yeah so the direct is essentially you know what we see often in movies is going up to the person and saying you know like what you're doing is not okay or stop or um calling them out on whatever behavior that they're doing that is harmful so there can be a lot of power in that and if it fits your personality and the situation then that is a tool that you can do is be direct uh, but there is also risk to that as well um, and we explore that a lot in our workshop. So the other thing that you can do is you can delegate and that really falls into what we were just talking about, calling the police, uh, maybe not feeling safe, uh, going forward yourself and intervening in the situation. So delegating really asks you to think about the different people that are available to you that could intervene on your behalf. And so that doesn't always have to be the police or security services. It could be somebody in a, in a position of, of authority. It could be somebody who has maybe more social clout than you do. Um, somebody who feels more comfortable or safer going into this situation. So delegating is a great um, ability to call other people in so that there's more witnesses, but also to maybe alleviate some of the direct impact that intervening could have on you. Um, so then we can also recommend distract. And I would say that this is probably the technique that is used the most frequent. 
So distract is really about doing anything that interrupts the flow of violence. And all it really, all you really need is a three second window. It's really not a lot to provide somebody an out where they can either leave the situation or you can, like I said, break the flow of violence. So distract could be as simple as, like you said, recording with your phone so that somebody knows if this is not going to be, well, okay, let me rephrase that. Recording with your phone could be seen as a direct way nowadays to intervene, but it's not actually verbally getting involved. So I'm going to actually put that on the back burner about talking about using your phone, and I'll get back to it because I think there's something important to be said about using a recording device. Distract would be, hey, um, do you know where this building is? Or I thought I saw you in class the other day. Are we in the same... Um, you know, are we in the same class? Um, I'm looking for the washroom or can you tell me what time it is? So it's really just, like I said, interrupting the flow uh, so that it breaks up the conversation, but it also shows that somebody's there and paying attention. So I just want to, like I said, go back to using the phone recording. So there can be a lot of power in recording a situation as well. But what I want to say is that if ever you do record a situation, one, make sure that it doesn't put you at further risk. But two, always ensure that you let the person who is being targeted, who is being harmed, know that you have this recording. Because it can just be as harmful for you as either a stranger or somebody who goes ahead and posts it somewhere without letting the person know and getting their consent. So documenting could add to their case. It could be very useful in an investigative process. But if it's not known to the person who is being harmed, then having some information about another person can be also just as harmful. So thinking about recording um, critically before going forward and doing it is an important point to, to bring up, I think. 100%. And I think that kind of goes back to what we discussed about um, changing the narrative about uh, supporting and disclosing information. I think that it's ultimately up to the survivor um, where this information goes, who gets to discuss it, um, how it gets to be portrayed. Um, and I think that that's super. So I just wanted to thank Bianca again for coming and having this conversation with us about sexual violence. This topic was um, very different than our other podcast episodes, but I think that it's a super important conversation to have. Um, I do encourage everyone to learn new mechanisms on how to support survivors and how to essentially just be a good friend. I think these are important conversations to have. And I think it's also important to discuss how sexual violence does affect minorities different than it does, um, you know, a, a, hold on, let me rephrase that. I do think it's important to discuss how sexual violence affects everyone and how the cycle of violence uh, can be perpetuated in our society. Um, I wanted to thank you again, Bianca, for coming on the episode. Is there anything else you'd like to say? 
Well, I want to thank you for uh, having me on today. We talked about so many great points, but really in a short amount of time. So I encourage everybody to come visit our website for more information. You can follow us on Facebook and on Instagram at OSVRSE McGill. Um, we are kind of like I would say our social media sites are a little bit closed for the summer. We are a lot slower with posting, but we're definitely back up in the fall, up and running. We also have a volunteer team. So if you're interested in getting involved, um, send us an email, check us out on our website. We have an application process um, and we're there for you this summer as well. If you have any questions. I want to just thank you again for having this conversation with me, having this conversation with my listeners, and really giving us more information on, you know, what to do when disclosing, how to um, properly handle these experiences, and how to be better bystanders, especially in, you know, the world that we're kind of living in right now. Um, I think that these are all very useful tools that we can all implement in our lives to make our society and our community safer and better and um, more inclusive. So I just wanted to thank you for that again. But before we go, you know I can't forget to mention My Plus One. My Plus One is a sexual wellness brand on a mission to empower women to own their sexuality. And all of their toys are easy, accessible, and affordable with like the prices being under $45. It's like super incredible. And their products are super, super high quality. And you can purchase them at your local Walmart or on Amazon. So it's super easy to purchase. They're super affordable. I recommend you check them out at underscore my plus one. But I just wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Ladies Let's Talk About Sex podcast. And we'll see you next Monday.